0: Thank you, Blake. Good job. Listen, um, before we get started here today with our teaching uh, portion, um, as you know, uh, tomorrow's Memorial Day, and uh, I'd I'd like to observe this time as we've done for several years now um, with a moment of silence. Uh, I think it's important for us to remember the sacrifices and lives lost during our nation's conflicts This is the tragic and terrible reality of living in a broken world, and we don't want to take those lives for granted, Uh, so just join me now uh, in a moment of silence in remembrance of that. Lord, we look forward to the fulfillment of your promises that you've made, of your kingdom coming, and how you will judge between the nations, and you will render decisions for many people. And we will hammer our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. And nations will not lift up swords against nations. And never again will we learn war, according to Isaiah 2.4. So let that truth become a reality in the world. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, and come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So, as Blake said, and as you may remember, we're in the middle of a uh, study right now. Um, It's a multi-church study. We're taking a break from our study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll return to that on June 20th. Um, But for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this subject that uh, was kind of the brainchild of the churches involved in a group that uh, we've been affiliating with now for the last year, and that's Pastors United of Bay County, which is we're focusing on unity as the church with, with uh, you know, racial unity as, as part of that or maybe a primary focus of that, which we believe that when we as the church, as God's people, attend to unity, it can have a profound impact on the larger society in which we've been placed. So that's one of the reasons that we're, we're looking at that. Our series is called Lord Make Us One. And we began in Genesis last week talking about uh, looking at how the Bible described humanity as being made in the image of God, how, uh, uh, you know, how that very origin uh, has profound meaning for us as human beings, how we have intrinsic value and dignity because of whose image we bear. So today, in this series, we're going to be kind of marching our way through the Bible. Again, it's only four weeks long, so, you know, we're going to be skipping a lot of stuff, but, but we're going to be going to the gospel. And, and we're going to look at, you know, we, we have the, the, the first Genesis account of humanity. Now we're going to look at the new Genesis account, which the gospels represent, a new Genesis, a new beginning uh, as the kingdom of God has invaded through Jesus. And, and we're going to look at, at Jesus's priority uh, in the prayer that he prays for his church, for his followers. We live in a highly divided world. I mean, we know that, of course. It's, it's interesting, though, that human bodies have 3 billion genetic building blocks in our DNA, or, or base pairs is what they're called. That's, that, that, that makes up who we are. That makes us who we are. We know that. Our DNA is, is what uh, we're comprised of. But of those 3 billion base pairs, only a tiny amount are, are unique to us as individuals meaning that we are 99.9% genetically similar to the person who is sitting next to you right now or any person on this planet, as a matter of fact. Yet regardless of how genetically similar we are, that 1% that is distinct has a disproportionate influence on how we interact with our fellow human beings. Instead of prioritizing our common humanity together, Our whole history as a world is that we've divided and subdivided, sometimes over the smallest of differences that we may perceive. And this was not God's original intent. He created us to be one humanity, made in His image, meant to reveal His rule over the created order. So for believers in Christ, our salvation has restored us to God's original intent. That's one of the things that we believe about salvation. We've talked about that a lot, that you know we've, we've flattened out the terminology of salvation to apply simply that I get to go to heaven when I die. But it's way more than that. It's about being restored to our original vocation that God has given us to be those image bearers of him into this world. And God's original intent is... Is, is unity for the human race. It's mandated uh, by God as we live in this divided world as a means of revealing God's original intent. So we're going to be talking about that today. We're going to be reading Jesus' words on this matter this morning. If you've got a Bible and you want to follow along, you want to find your way to John chapter 17 uh, today, we're going to be reading in a section that's called Jesus' farewell address to his disciples Uh, It takes place in the hours before Jesus' arrest and trial. And we're going to focus on the end of this address here in chapter 17, though I would recommend taking time to read the entire chapter, uh, the entire prayer that Jesus prays. It's really good. Um, And and much gets revealed uh, about Jesus, about his values and his priorities as we listen to him pray here today. But a lot gets revealed about us. And God's intention for us. And God's intention for this new family that he's formed called the church. This is called the high priestly prayer by some. It's called the longest prayer by others. And there's a good reason for that because it's the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. But it's also the longest in scope. Meaning it stretches from the time that Jesus uttered it to 2,000 years later into our present moment right here and right now. Uh, It's one of those... Occasions where Jesus is, we're going. As we read this, we realize Jesus is praying for you right now, right, right here. There are three movements in this prayer. First, Jesus prays for himself and for the glory of the Father, and then he prays for his followers who are with him presently, and then he concludes by praying for all who will believe on him throughout all of time, which of course is applying to us here this morning, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to see in Jesus's prayer that unity is a biblical mandate, which makes it a priority for us as Christ's followers. So if you're there in John chapter 17, uh, we're going to read the section that we're going to be examining here today, starting with verse 20. Jesus is praying and he says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they'll all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they will be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience, experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Amen. Okay. So here Jesus specifically is praying for us here in this room today. And, and for Christ followers everywhere. That means fellow believers, wherever they may be, on, on this beach, all the various churches on this beach, in town in Panama City, in Glendale, in Haven, and Callaway and Springfield, and out from there to include all of the churches around this world where all believers in all places are meeting today to celebrate our mutual trust in Christ. He is praying for all of us right here, right now. And this is an ongoing perpetual prayer being prayed for us, and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thought uh, to consider it that way. And in this prayer, he repeats three times his intention that we be one, one people, even as Christ and the Father are one. He prayed for unity among his followers. So if God's will is being revealed in Jesus' prayer here, then we see that the gospel initiative tears down traditional barriers to unite all believers in Christ, to unite us in Christ. This, he says, is what's going to cause the world to take note, and it echoes back to when he said that the world is going to know that we're his followers because of our love for one another. Back in, in John chapter 13, verse 35. Unity then, we see, you know, as we put these things together, unity is a gospel mandate. It's, it's meant to be a chief characteristic of the church. This is at the outset. This is right at the beginning of this whole thing that Jesus is making this statement. It is supposed to be a chief characteristic of the church. But, but Rob... What does this mean? When you say unity, I mean, does this mean that we're all going to look alike? Does this, you know, mean that we're all going to have the same tastes and interests? I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that some person likes that I don't really care for. Orange popsicles gross me out, but some people love them. And, uh, you know, does that mean we're going to think exactly alike and have exactly the same political views and interpret every scripture the same way? That just seems untenable to me. So I'm glad you brought that up because it's it's an important thing to recognize here that Jesus cannot mean a formal arrangement of unity in this prayer. He's not praying, remember, for uniformity, but uh, but something else. He's not praying for an institutional unity. That isn't something, you know, that we can demand or force. Uh, you know, those kinds of things can happen. There is a unity that comes through fear or coercion, and we've witnessed those things either by Some heavily enforced conformity to a code of beliefs or conduct or the more subtle intimidation from some intelligentsia that defines life's values uh, and practice for us. Cultures and governments and the church alike have all dabbled in that sort of compelled unity. But that is not what Jesus prayed for. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is greater than that. Unity allows for diversity. Jesus prayed for a unity of love there in verse 23, of a common identity in Jesus. That is the unity Jesus prayed for. We won't all have the same tastes or interests or even interpretations of God's word, but we will have a sense of each other's significance as people who have found life in Jesus Christ. And that is our bond. The life that we've received from Jesus. That is our bond that holds us together. But Rob, why don't we see a greater unity then? Why haven't we seen this among believers if this is what Jesus prays for? Look at the history of the church. Where has it been? Well, a couple things here on that. but But first and foremost, maybe... We don't have unity because we really haven't asked for it very much. I mean, Eastgate's been a church for 27, 28 years now. 27, I guess, years. I don't know that we've ever done a series like this. I'm going to tell you that in all of these years, it's is the first time I've gotten together with all these other pastors and we've dropped all the things that could have divided us before. Then we're praying for it. We're asking for it. We're, we're seeking it and looking for it. Maybe we haven't achieved it because we haven't remembered that it is a priority, that it is a mandate. Uh, And there's a really good reason to pray for unity. Let's look at what Jesus prayed again. Let's look again at verse 21. I pray that they will be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. So why should we pray for unity? Because our unity as Christians is based on the unity of Jesus and the Father. In other words, Our unity is meant to mirror the personal dynamic of the father and the son, where there is distinction and yet equality of personhood. We were meant to reveal something about God through our unity. In Colossians 2, 9, Paul is writing about Jesus and says that the full measure of the divinity has taken a bodily residence in him. So in this prayer that Jesus is praying, he's disclosing something about his own nature, as, as human and divine, that he is, is co-equal with the Father and yet distinct uh, as well. But he's also cluing us in as to how we're to see our fellow human believer as co-equal participants in the divine nature through Jesus. And look, I know it's a little like insider baseball. It gets a little, It gets a little theologically technical, but it's important to recognize the heavy significance of our unity as believers in Christ. I mean, you know, someone could be saying, oh, Rob, this just sounds a little weird to me. I mean, saying that we're co-equal participants in the divine nature, is that some sort of Eastern thing or something? (laughs) Yeah, because the whole Bible is. And I'm quoting 2 Peter 1.14, where Peter says, Jesus has given us his precious and wonderful promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, seeing that you've escaped the corruption that's in the world caused by evil desires. What Peter's talking about is how we as believers in Jesus have now been filled with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is inhabiting us as Jesus prayed, would happen in John uh, John 14, 16, and 17, where Jesus said this, I will ask the Father, he'll give you another advocate who will never leave you. He's the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world can't receive him because it isn't looking for him, doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. And what he's talking about there is the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit descends and inhabits Christ's followers from that time on. This is how we participate in the divine nature. It's through the Spirit of God that we're all united with all other believers, uh, with whom the Spirit, in whom the Spirit also inhabits. The Holy Spirit is in the believers. We are all in the Holy Spirit. We're all united because of that. God is not divided. And if we're in Him, we are with Him. We are in Him with all others who are also in Him. But there's another reason to pray for unity, and that is that our unity is directly tied to our glorifying of God. We all want to glorify God. We talk about that a lot. But let's look again at what Jesus said in verse 22. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. So, you know, we as Christians, we talk a lot about giving glory to God. We sing a lot about it. You know, it's in our worship songs. We say that a lot. You know, listen, we want to glorify you, glorify God and and, and all, lifting him up uh, as creator and Lord. Jesus makes it pretty clear here that there's a direct correlation between our unity as believers and God's glory being revealed. So what does it mean to bring glory to God? What are we talking about when we use that kind of language? It means that we are more accurately revealing what God is like, what God's intention and purposes are in this world. And this goes back to last week's message. We were made as image bearers of God. And when we're unified through a a mutual respect and, and care for all believers, we're revealing what God's glorious reign is like what it meant for God to be king and to rule over us, and what it's like. Jesus said, I've given them the glory that you gave me, meaning that he's given us the same purpose that Jesus had, to reveal what God is like. We've said this many times before, that if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. If we want to know what God is saying, we listen to what Jesus said. If we want to know what God is up to, we look at what Jesus did. That was Jesus' ministry, and that's what he's handed to us. And Jesus, when he was there, he crossed all established boundaries to reach out and humanize the oppressed and the marginalized of this world, revealing the value and dignity of all humanity, revealing God's love and grace to creation. That was our role as image bearers of God. Our unity as believers from, from every tradition and culture and race and gender, carries on the mission of Christ because it's revealing what God is like and how God loves the human race, as he says there in verse 23. In fact, this is another reason that we need to pray for unity. And again, look at what Jesus said, verse 23. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Our unity is our witness to an unbelieving world. Our unity was a primary part of our witness to an unbelieving world. Well, how is this a witness to the world? Well, listen, it is no secret that the world is a highly divided place. I mean, we lament and complain regularly that our nation feels so terribly polarized by politics and cultural distinctions and all of that. And all of the things that divide the world's people are all potentially present in the church because the church is made up of people. And yet there is supposed to be something transcendent that draws us together, something that rises above all of those normal and, and what feel like natural barriers. When an onlooking world views the church, if they can see a diverse people who are united, the world will see it and know that on some level that this kind of human community, which spills all the banks of the traditional barriers of race and culture and gender and class, that spills all of that in order to unite, this kind of human community can only come from the action of the divine, from someone bigger than us, who can sort through this big mess and draw us together. But here's the tragedy of it at this moment. This is the way it could be, the way it should be. But the way it is, is not that yet. We don't have that witness. The church has rarely, throughout its entire history, had that sort of witness. And certainly the church in our country, has been so highly segregated. We haven't had that witness. We've divided it by race, by politics, by cultural views. And I know that you're very... Well, I don't know this. I think it's possible that you're tired of me ranting on about allowing political allegiances to divide us up. But I mean, guys, there have been people who've left Eastgate, not because of how I've taught God's Word, and not because of what I've said about Jesus, but because they didn't feel I represented Republican politics properly. And I'm just going to say this politicizing of the church is heresy. And you don't hear me use that term very often. But that word, when used biblically and according to its original meaning, is applicable to this because it means something that's divisive, something that creates a schism within the community. And I can't think of anything that does that more than the political allegiances of our world. And I just think that instead of being staunch Democrats or loyal Republicans, let's try being faithful Christians who have set out... To do the will of God according to what his kingdom has called for. And if we do that, we'll be praying for and working towards the unity that Jesus prayed that we would have. The unbelieving world is looking on. And all they've seen is the same thing that they've already experienced. How are they going to believe that God loves them unconditionally when we can't do that with each other, how are they going to know? And I don't know. I mean, if this sounds harsh, cheer up because it's going to get worse because John in first John four makes it even tougher. And I'm going to let him say it so that it's not me. But first John four twenty says, if someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person's a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? Unity is a biblical mandate. It's what Jesus prayed for us to have. It's how we glorify God and we reveal to the world the truth of this good news and the greatness of God's grace and unconditional love. And I know that as we look at the church, and as I've mentioned before, it's easy to think that Jesus' prayer has not been answered yet. I mean, we look at the church and all of the divisions that run down religious lines all through our history. Some have reported that there are 34,000 different denominations in the Protestant church alone, and that doesn't take into account all the variations of Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Oriental Orthodoxy, Assyrian churches, or Anglicans. It's sort of like, where two or more are gathered in my name, there'll be a church split. And it's, <laughs> it's tempting to think, it's tempting to think that Jesus' prayer went unanswered. You know, well, this thing was a bust. You know, he tried, he meant well, but it didn't happen. But to think that, I believe, would be wrong. Because this isn't a matter of trying to engineer something. This isn't a matter of us trying to work something up or make something happen. It's a matter of perspective, because you see, from God's perspective, we are one. As God views us as his church, big C, we are one. God most certainly answered Jesus's prayer. We just have to believe it and act on it. Just as there's nothing that we have to do to earn our salvation and make it real, we just got to Believe it, embrace it, and let that salvation work out in our lives as we live it. The same is true with our unity with all of the church. We're already one. We just have to believe it and live like it. We've always been one. We're one with Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church. We're one with Truth Fellowship and Living Waters Ministry and North Star and Catalyst and Victory Temple, and Lynn Haven Methodist, and Church on the Beach, and City Church, and Lighthouse, and Woodlawn, and I don't have the time or breath to name every church here, but you get the point, right? We are one with all of those who call on the name of Jesus for life. We can't make someone else see it that way, but as much as it's up to us, we can determine whether we will see ourselves as united in Christ with our Catholic sisters and brothers, with our Baptist or Lutheran or Pentecostal or any form of gathering that claims life in Christ. Does it mean we're going to agree with everybody's interpretation of everything? Certainly not. We're not talking about uniformity. We're talking about unity that transcends uniformity and bonds us together in love. NT Wright wrote, unity is vital. Often we sense it, heard like soft music through the partition walls we set up around ourselves. Sometimes we experience it when for a moment we meet Christians from a totally different background and discover that despite our many differences or the traditions that keep us apart, we know a unity of love and devotion that cannot be broken. I can still remember going to, to South Sudan and sitting down with Pastor Judah. And I didn't know his language, and he barely knew my language, but we would get to the word Jesus, to the name Jesus, and something would happen. We'd know it, we'd feel it. It's beyond being able to articulate it intelligently. It's just there. There's a union, a unity that's there with all who call on the name of Jesus. And so to me, that's the goal, to recognize that all of these outer trappings that we have they're all non-essential to learn to perceive each other as one family of God and and for us in our own understanding uh, as a community called Eastgate that we remember that without the surfboards and flip-flops and disorganized casualness and coffee stains we are united with every human being who finds their hope and life in Jesus Christ regardless of what differences we may have that are surfaced. Unity is a biblical mandate. It was prayed for from the heart of Jesus. So let's commit to praying for this as well, that we receive by faith what God has provided and that we unite together across any and every barrier that this broken world and its patterns tries to construct that we glorify God with our united faith, revealing the reality of God's unconditional love for us by extending that same love and grace to others. So let's make it our prayer and our purpose to be one with all who call upon Jesus so that we, as we are united in Christ, can look across and see the vast array (laughs) of, Of God's variety of the human race and find that oneness, like the Father and the Son are one. Right on?